and uh, read it together, actually. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before he came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for, what, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he did not know her until he had given birth, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just ask that you would speak to us from your word, that you would guide us and direct us. And even as we go through the Christmas story, that we would marvel at the Son of God being born of the Virgin, being born uh, in the flesh, coming down. We thank you for the greatness of what you did for us. We thank you that this led you to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins. We ask again that you would speak to us through your word, that the name of the Son uh, would be glorified. Amen. So as you come to this passage in, in the Christmas season, you look at this and you say, God is amazing. And one of the things I think so often in the Christmas season, we, we come and we say, yes, we've heard these things before. There are times in the Christmas season that I say, where am I going to preach from again? Because we've preached the Christmas story before. Uh, last year we did Luke. Uh, this year we're going to do Matthew. Uh, I'm toying with the idea of actually maybe doing Ruth next year, although it's not the Christmas story per se. But there is something true and good to remind ourselves in the Christmas season is we're not saying anything new. What we are teaching about Jesus has been passed down to us for 2,000 years. Christians have taught these things because this is what the Word of God said. And what happened here with Jesus and the virgin birth was unique. And it was important. And, and the, the whole world hinges on what happens in Jesus being born of the virgin, living the obedient life for us, dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. When I was dating my wife, my dad used to often say, and he said this sort of as a warning, uh, he would often say to, on occasion say to me, there is only one virgin birth, meaning I, I better keep on the straight and narrow. But you can imagine what Joseph experiences here when he finds out Mary is pregnant. You can imagine the concern, the fear, the, just the shock of, well, I'm not the father, who is? The point is, there is only one virgin birth. Because Jesus is unique. 
the Son of God came down into Mary's womb and took on flesh. Our main point this morning is this. In Jesus, God comes to save his people from their sins. In Jesus Christ, God comes to save his people from their sins. There are many passages in Scripture that describe God hearing the cries of his people and coming down to save them. This is one of the great things about how the book of Exodus starts off. It says, in effect, God says to Moses, I have heard the cries of my people. I have seen their affliction and I have come down to deliver them. And of course, he calls Moses as the prophet. Over and over again, God steps in and intervenes to save his people. But in Jesus, the Son of God steps into humanity by taking on the fullness of humanity to save his people. He quite literally comes down to save his people. First, this morning, as we walk through this passage, Jesus is conceived in Mary from the Holy Spirit. I hope that that point number one is not uh, too profound there. Uh, it should be obvious from this passage is what I, what I mean. We're not saying new things. This is the Christmas story. This is what Scripture testifies. Jesus is conceived in Mary from the Holy Spirit. So, before their marriage, Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. Look with me, if you will, into verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So at this point here, Joseph and Mary are engaged to be married. They are betrothed. They are promised to one another. Uh, Betrothal in the ancient world was a little more serious than it is in our world. Uh, in the sense that it's not wrong today if a couple breaks off an engagement. In this context, you were married in the sense of the promise has been made. The marriage has not been consummated. It has not been formalized. It has not been entered into. But this is why Joseph has to dismiss her privately through divorce. Because they have been promised to each other. The text here doesn't tell us how Joseph finds out, only that he did. In fact, it even just says she, Mary, was found to be with child. And we understand from the context that somehow then Joseph has found this out. We don't know the scenario, but I imagine Mary being a a young woman, having had the angel appear to her, I imagine at some point she also told her mom and dad. I can't imagine how that conversation went down. I hope that her parents were God-fearing and, and, and maybe uh, after a little bit of suspicion truly believed that an angel did come and say this to her. But you can imagine the gossip chain that went around. You can imagine what Joseph's first thoughts were. Because it tells us in this passage that, that Joseph is a righteous man. A man who walks with the Lord can imagine everyone around them knew where babies come from and if mary has a baby in her womb you can imagine what they assumed 
You can imagine how hard it was for her. So it says when his mother, uh, when Jesus's mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before they came together in the fullness of the marriage ceremony, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This pregnancy has come from the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not to think here that the Holy Spirit has some sort of sexual union with Mary, but rather the Holy Spirit comes down, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Son of God takes up residence in the womb of Mary. Jesus Christ is an eternal person. He has existed from all eternity past. So it is through the power of the Spirit, although Jesus could have done it through his own power, But this highlights the working and the role of the Holy Spirit here. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he comes into Mary's womb and takes on true human flesh. He would have been a, a fetus developing in the womb. You know how as a child develops, they start out and the cells multiply and at various stages the heart is formed and limbs are formed. And, and all of these things, Jesus Christ grew up. He grew up in the womb, and after he was born, he grew up. Luke tells us the child grew in wisdom and knowledge. Jesus Christ took on humanity in all of its form and function, yet without sin, because the Holy Spirit caused him to enter this womb. Luke's Gospel says this, And the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That's Luke 1.31. Luke 1.34 and 35. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. This Greek word here for for overshadowing is the exact word they used in Exodus 40 when they translated the, the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. They used the word overshadow to describe how the glory of God came down and, and filled the tabernacle. And Moses couldn't go into the tabernacle because the glory was just so powerful in there. The, the glory of God overshadowed that tent. It manifested itself there. It came to dwell there. The glory of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ comes to overshadow the womb of Mary to, to take up residence there. So that John, in John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled, Amongst us, the power of the Holy Spirit causes the Lord Jesus to enter the womb of Mary, and Joseph is told this. We'll notice in Matthew's Gospel the highlight of this fulfills Scripture. Look down at verses 22 and 23. And this took place, this virgin birth, what is going on here, the the birth through the Holy Spirit to the virgin... All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This comes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah is prophesying. He says, therefore, he says to the king Ahaz, 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall come, shall conceive and bear a son and shall uh, call his name Emmanuel. In the context of Isaiah chapter 7, King Ahaz had been told by Isaiah, this is what God will do. He will deliver you from two kings. And then King Ahaz is told by Isaiah, ask God for a sign. Now, normally we shouldn't put the Lord God to the test. We shouldn't say to God, God, if you don't do this to me, I'm not going to believe you. But God here through Isaiah is saying, Ahaz, this is what I'm going to do. And I want you to trust me. And so that you trust me, just ask me for a sign. Tell me something that I should do, and and I will do it to prove my word to you. And Ahaz kind of gets all, um, we'll say, cocky. And and he just kind of, well, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. Again, normally it would be wrong to put God to the test and ask him for a sign. But when God tells you, ask me for a sign, it's wrong for you not to do what he says. And so Ahaz, trying to be super spiritual here, well, well, I won't ask God for a test. So Isaiah prophesying says, fine, you want a sign? The virgin will have a baby. It says before the child uh, knows right from wrong, before the child grows up at all, uh, the two kings which you uh, are are worried about will be destroyed. You'll be liberated from them. The irony here is that Ahaz is long dead when the sign comes. Ahaz has long been delivered from the two kings that he dreaded. It's kind of a reversal. Ahaz is told, ask me for a sign, and you expect the sign will happen so that you know the word of God will happen. Ahaz says, well, I'm not going to ask for a sign. So says, God says, fine, I'll give you a sign that I'm going to keep my word. The virgin will have a baby. But the two kings, God fulfilling his word, that actually happens before the sign comes. Because Ahaz never really had trust in the Lord. And so God, in a sense, doesn't show Ahaz the true and final fulfillment of the sign. There's some things going on in, Matthew, in Isaiah chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. We can't get into to all of it and how some of it plays out. There's another child in Matthew chapter 8. But you'll notice the true fulfillment of Isaiah 7 is referenced in Isaiah chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is Jesus. This is the one who was prophesied. This is the one who comes to us uh, in the virgin birth. You can see in Matthew chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 19, Joseph plans to divorce Mary privately. It says, verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just and a just man and unwilling to put her to say, resolved to divorce her quietly. According to Jewish tradition, according to the Jewish Mishnah, you could get a divorce just by having two uh, witnesses sign the divorce papers. You could just write out the paper. You could do it in a private way. You wouldn't need to draw her before the people at the, the court gate or at the city gate where they conducted uh, court business. From Deuteronomy chapter 22, I think it's important to notice that if an engaged woman 
had relations with another man. Both parties were guilty of adultery. This is why Joseph is is writing her a, a bill of divorce. Joseph's intent, his original thinking is she's had relations with another man. She's committed adultery even though we haven't formalized the marriage vows. It's the equivalent of adultery. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it says that the man is guilty of having, quote, relations with his neighbor's wife, even though it was the engagement period. And Joseph here, as a just man, where I think we're to take it, he's he's not only uh, righteous and upright in his own conduct, but he's caring and compassionate and righteousness uh, in the way that he's going to treat Mary. He's not going to go along with her with what he thinks is her sin. But at the same time, he's not going to humiliate her. He's going to part ways privately and as secretly as possible. It goes to show the character of Joseph. I don't think we're supposed to think that Joseph is unreasonable here. I think we're supposed to see Joseph is perfectly reasonable and godly. As my dad, I told you, used to always say there was only one virgin birth. Joseph has no reason that he should think that Mary got pregnant in any different way than women normally get pregnant, at least until the angel tells Joseph otherwise. You see how Joseph handles this? You see how he's treating her with kindness, even despite uh, what he thinks is, is a wrong on her part? And then the angel comes. The angel should be a reminder to us. We know who Jesus is. We know how Jesus came. We know why Jesus came. That's our second point this morning. Uh, Number two, Jesus saves us from our sins. Why is it that the Son of God has to come down and take up residence in the womb of Mary, become like us in every respect. It is to save us from our sins. David the king was promised that there would be an even greater king than him and that this king would reign forever. Why could that promise not have been fulfilled by Solomon? Why could it not have been fulfilled by one of David's descendants? Why did it have to be the Son of God coming into Mary and taking on the fleshly line of David? Because every one of David's sons, grandsons, great-grandsons, was a sinner. And they could not represent their people, God's people, before the throne of God, because they had their own sins. And so the Son of God, to fulfill the plan of God, comes down and is born of the Virgin Mary and is born into the physical line of David. So we have here the angel appears to Joseph, uh, verse 20, but as he considered these things, so he's, he's sitting around, so to speak, he's, he's pondering, he's weighing this, he's planning, okay, the right thing to do would be to divorce Mary, the right thing to do uh, in kindness to her would be to do it privately. He's considering these things. It says, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
first notice, and, and I confess to you, this, this struck me when I read this this week in study. I, I don't know that I particularly paid attention to this other times. I'm, I'm sure I saw it, but notice it says, Joseph, son of David. Joseph himself is from the line of David. Jo- you, can, you can see it back in chapter 1. Uh, verses 15, 16, and 17, as we go through the, the genealogy of Jesus, and I think what Matthew does is he goes through the kingly line uh, of inheritors. It says in verse 15, Elihu, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Methan. Methan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the, son, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I think the mention here of Joseph again then, and it highlights in verse 20, Joseph is the son of David. And I think there's two ways here in which Joseph is like David, in which he's the son of David. One is obviously, he's a physical descendant of David. The the kingly successions could be passed down through through David, uh, through David's sons, all the way down to Joseph. And while Mary is also a descendant of David through different lines, Joseph himself, who would be the earthly father, not physically, but but in an adoptive sense of of Jesus, is a son of David. I also think, though, it highlights the character of Joseph again. Sometimes in the biblical language, when you say son of something, it means you have the character traits of someone. So Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and calls them the son of the devil, or their father the devil. He doesn't mean that they're physically from the devil, but he means they have the character traits. I think this highlights again to us that David really is a just man. The scriptures tell us over and over again that David was a man who ruled in justice and righteousness. He had mercy and compassion on widows and and orphans. I think Joseph here is like a David. You can see he's beginning to have compassion on Mary. You can see later on, you can, well, you can't see it, but you can imagine Joseph being the father to Jesus and the rumors that went around. We know from John's gospel, in John chapter 8, the Pharisees, when they want to make a dig on Jesus, they say, well, at least we weren't born from sexual immorality. The word continued to spread. You know how gossip just goes around and you you can't ever really truly stomp it out? Gossip continued to go around about Jesus. But Joseph is a man of God. And when God tells him to, to take Mary as his wife and, and, and let Mary raise this child, and Joseph's going to be involved with this as well, Joseph obeys the commands of the Lord. He honors God. Even, I think, it, what would have been great personal sacrifice to his own reputation. Look at verse 21. It says that, that Jesus will save his people from their sins. So the angel is explaining to, to Joseph, in a sense, you know, why does this have to be a virgin birth? Why is this unique? It says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, the name, means something like Yahweh or Jehovah saves. 
In Jesus Christ, the Son of God has, has come in the flesh and God will save His people through the death and the resurrection of His Son. The Son of God comes to save His people by becoming just like them in every respect, coming down into the womb of Mary, taking on all of human nature so that He could die for us on the cross. Keep your finger in Matthew and flip over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to read verses 14, 15, 16, and, and 17. Uh, you know me, I couldn't resist a chance to get Hebrews in here. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, he's talking about Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In Hebrews chapter 5, it tells us that the high priest has to be called from among the people. He has to be one of the people. So if Jesus Christ is going to represent us and going to be the sacrifice in our place, he has to be one of us. What are human beings? We are flesh and blood. We have DNA. We have lungs. We have hearts. Some of us have hair. Jesus had all of these things. Down to the cellular level, Jesus Christ was truly human. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He likewise partook of the same things. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect down to every minute detail if you could take jesus's body and examine it down to the quantum level jesus was human 100 percent. now when god created humanity he created human beings in a state of innocence so while all of us are born sinful because of Adam's sin and we compound it with our own sin, being sinful isn't essential to being human. In other words, every human after Adam is a sinner from the moment they are conceived and as they are born. And we grow up and we live sinful lives because we come into this world with the guilt of sin over us. But being a sinful human isn't inherent to the original purpose and plan and creation of God. And so Jesus Christ can take on true humanity in every respect and at the same time not be a sinful human being. And because He is perfect, He can represent us. 
And because he lives the perfect life in obedience to God, he can go to the cross with a a clear conscience in obedience to the Father to pay for our sins because he has no sin of his own. Jesus Christ comes to save his people from their sins. He does this so that he could make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is is sacrificial language. Sacrifices of atonement, like where you would kill the the ram on the altar and take it into the the, um, tabernacle before the the, uh, Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God there, or the footstool of God's throne. Jesus Christ is the true sacrifice for our sin. The true Lamb of God who was slain on our behalf. And when we say He makes propitiation for our sins, it means that all of the anger and wrath that God rightly and justly has for our sin because of our guilt, all of it, is poured out to Jesus, onto Jesus as he suffers on the cross. And propitiation means that Jesus Christ, in being the perfect sacrifice, exhausts the punishment that there is for our sin. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, how do you know that you will go to heaven? Because Jesus Christ paid for every single one of your sins, past, present, and future. Now that's not an excuse to go on sinning. It's not like being given a free credit card and then going out there and saying, I'm going to rack up the debt. But it is comfort. It is assurance that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not face the wrath of God for your sin. Why? Because God took the guilt of that sin and He gave it to Christ and He poured out the punishment for Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ became just like you in every respect so that when He got on the cross, He could stand in your place and say, I am representing you as My people. You belong to Me and I am dying for you. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, For surely it is not angels that He helped. Jesus Christ didn't become like the angels. He doesn't die in the place for angels. Rather, it says, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. uh, The seed of Abraham. Now, this is a concept that goes back into uh, the Old Testament, into Genesis, Genesis 15, Genesis 12. Abraham has promised that he will have a seed, that he will have descendants. It becomes the nation of Israel, at least initially. But in the New Testament, we are told this. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians 3, chapter chapter 3, verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs of the promise. In other words, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have confessed your sins, trusted on Jesus Christ, you become an heir of, to all those Old Testament promises that God made to Abraham, but also the ones that God made to David, you become a co-heir with Jesus Christ 
so that Jesus Christ is the one that has helped you. You believe on Him. His blood has covered your sins. He has paid the penalty. He comes to your aid. Just like in Exodus where God says, I heard the cries of my people and I have come down. Jesus heard the cry of our sin and the guilt that we had before God. And He was sent by the Father because of the Father and the Son's love for us. Jesus comes to save His people. This is received through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice that Christ in His coming accomplishes salvation. Salvation is effective because Christ's blood is effective. When you get before the throne of God, you will say, Worthy is the Lamb who has been slain because He has redeemed a people for Himself from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation. The reason you and I come to saving faith is Christ has died on the cross. And that blood accomplishes its purpose. And the Holy Spirit comes along and opens our eyes to see this. And we believe. You won't get to heaven and take credit for what you did. You won't get to heaven and take credit saying, I believed. You will get to heaven and give credit. Christ died for my sins. His blood has accomplished the redemption. He has saved His people from their sins. Everything that Christ came into this world to accomplish for the Father, Christ has or will accomplish. He dies to save His people. And you and I need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but, but Christ does not come in the hope that some might be saved. Oh, if only if I do this, maybe someone will believe in me. Christ actually pays for sin and people come to salvation because God does all the work in salvation. Just as Mary did nothing and the Holy Spirit came down into Mary's womb and suddenly she has a child, you and I are sinners dead in our sin and the Holy Spirit comes down, opens our eyes to see the Gospel. We respond and believe. But God in Christ has done it all. Romans chapter, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and tongue. Or, yeah, from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Revelation 5.12, saying with a loud voice, this is before the throne of God, where the Lamb is on the throne, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There will be a great multitude of multitudes of people in heaven. There will be people 
that don't speak a lick of English in heaven. I don't even know if we'll speak English in heaven. I don't know what we'll speak. But there will be people there that never spoke English. That, that are from some tiny place in Africa or South America that we have never heard of. There will be people there from some tiny little tribe that only ten people from the outside world ever went to. There will be people in heaven saved from those tribes, from those nations, from those places. To the Old Testament concept, America is a foreign nation. And people from America stream before the throne of God on the last day because Christ died for a people from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation. Notice what is special about Jesus. Jesus is God with us. That's what Emmanuel means here, verse 23. For the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You can think of the language in Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You can, you can hear divine language here to describe God. And in the English, we capitalize all these because we're talking about the deity here of the Son. He's the wonderful counselor like only God can. He's the, the mighty God, everlasting Father. It doesn't, doesn't confuse the Godhead. It doesn't mean He's God the Father. But He is, as a Savior, in a sense, the, the Father, the caretaker, the the progenitor, if you will, of His people. Why are there a people of God? Because Christ died for them. Christ redeemed them and won them. And in this sense, He's an everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is truly God with us in that the person of Jesus is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. 1 John 1.14 The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 1.19 For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9 For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now let me be clear about this. On the one hand, Jesus is not just a man. So let's... He is truly a man, Right? He has true humanity. He is like us in every respect. But also, at the same time, the mystery of the Incarnation is that Jesus is truly God. God in the flesh. So, when we say Jesus is God with us, we we don't mean that Jesus is just some kind of spiritual person. Like you and I might say, you know, I had a rough day the other day and God was really with me. We mean that God sent us comfort, right? We mean that God's presence was there. We may even mean the Holy Spirit was in us at some point, encouraging us, helping us, building us up. And that is all appropriate language to talk about God and and the Holy Spirit. But when we say Jesus is God with us, 
We don't just mean that Jesus is a person who had a really powerful experience with the Holy Spirit, and so he was sort of, it's almost as if God would have been there. No, it means God was really there in the humanity of Jesus Christ. The glory of God took on human flesh. Why is this important? Because we live in a a day and age of, of, of spirituality is popular, right? If you talk to people and you use spiritual language, people might say to you, you know, I, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And they'll talk about, you know, communing with the divine, and they'll talk about the divine presence. And, you know, you used to just have to watch Oprah, and you could see it everywhere. And, and you know, these, these spiritual people, and they'll talk about, you know, the God in us, or, or even the, the Christ principle that comes down into us. And so, Jesus, for some, being God with us, sort of means He's this example of what it means to be like a holy spiritual guru. He had really great fellowship with God. And, and you can have God with you too if you just have really great spiritual communion or whatever we call it, meditative practice, whatever it might be. Whatever it is, it's wrong. One, it's not what the spiritual life is about. The spiritual life comes through knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and being in union with Him in a relationship with Him. But also, it's not what the Bible means when it says Jesus is God with us. When you touched Jesus, if you were a disciple walking with Him, you were touching a human man who was 100% human, but you were also touching the one who is truly God, the glory of God in the flesh. You are seeing God face to face, as it were. Yes, there is a sense where His glory is veiled. But in the last day, we will see Jesus Christ in His resurrected state in a human body, and His glory will be radiating out of it. A glory which He had from all eternity past will shine through the One who is still incarnate in human flesh. Because right now, He is in heaven at the right hand of the Father in a resurrected human body, sitting down to make intercession for us. Because Christ really saves His people. When you think about Christmas, what do you think about? Do you think about presents? Presents are nice. Or do you think about Jesus? When you think about Jesus, what do you think about? What do you you tell your kids? Some Christians today, our kids know more about Elf on the Shelf than they do about what the incarnation entails. Now, I'm not saying a little two-year-old can understand all of the details, but as your children grow up, do you regularly talk to them about who Jesus is? Could you yourself, in a manner that's consistent with Scripture, explain to someone how Jesus is truly God and truly man? I recognize there's an element where this is just a mystery, right? But there's also biblical language and biblical Scripture that that does explain to an extent that we can know these things. Do you know them? Do you praise God for them? Do you worship God and the Lord Jesus Christ because of who He is 
and what he's done. I love this analogy from Athanasius in his book on the Incarnation. Athanasius was a guy who literally put his life on the line and was almost killed on several occasions for the truth that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Most of us, if someone put a gun to our head and said, deny that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, many of us would struggle with what do we do? Athanasius put his life on the line. He wasn't willing to compromise even to say that Jesus was God-like. But that Jesus Christ, if he is truly Emmanuel, he must be God with us. He writes this, You know how it is when some great king enters a large city and dwells in one of its houses. Because of his dwelling in that single house, the whole city is honored and enemies and robbers cease to molest it. So it is with the king of all. He has come into our country and dwelt in one body amidst the many. And in consequence, the designs of the enemy against mankind have been foiled, and the corruption of death, which formerly held them in its power, has simply ceased to be. For the human race would have perished utterly had not the Lord and Savior of all, the Son of God, come among us and put an end to death. How did the Son do this? He put an end to death by dying on the cross in his flesh and blood. That's what makes it so special today, too, that we're celebrating communion. We're talking about the literal birth of Jesus, that he had flesh and blood. And then we're, as it were, in a sense, skipping to the end of the story and reminding ourselves what happened to that flesh and blood. Jesus really died. His body was broken. His blood was shed. The eternal Son of God in His humanity truly died so that the real body that was there in the grave was truly dead. And when Jesus rose up from death, He showed us that His sacrifice has conquered sin and death. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, sin and death has been and will be conquered in you because of what Jesus has done. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that that as we partake of communion today, uh, that you would bless us, that you would remind us of, of the body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us, that we would delight ourselves in You, that You would use this to, to preach the Gospel to us, to proclaim to us uh, the Lord's death until He comes. Even as we take this in unity, we, we proclaim to each other uh, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this death had to take place so that we might be saved from our sins. We pray, Lord, that we would look to You with the eyes of faith. In Your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask uh, the guys uh, to come forward uh, who help with the communion. Ken, um, Matt, if you would come too. Uh, and we're going to pass out uh, communion.
want to invite you, if you have never received the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you stand under the wrath of God. But if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, confess that He is Savior and Lord, acknowledge that you are a sinner, and believe that His death has paid the penalty for sins, you can be forgiven. All the guilt of your sin from the moment you believe is completely washed away because Christ's blood covers your sin. If you have never believed in that, today, in the quietness of your heart, would you receive Jesus as your Savior? Just pray to Him and say, I'm a sinner. My sin leaves me guilty before you. I should be punished. I should go to hell and suffer for what I've done wrong. But Jesus Christ died on the cross. Lord Jesus, give to me that forgiveness of sin that you offer to all. If you've done that at some point, if you believe those things today and you are here, you are welcome to take communion with us. But the Scriptures warn us that we should, each one of us, examine ourselves before the Lord before we take communion. Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord? Have you received the forgiveness of sins? And as we pass these elements out, to the best of your knowledge, do you have any sins that are unconfessed? And if you do, spend a few moments in in the quietness of your heart, just going before God in His presence, Jesus being your perfect mediator, and say to Him, You know, Lord, I have these things that I've done again as sin. And I know you died for me, but I want to acknowledge this sin before you right now and have a clear conscience and good fellowship with you. We're going to pass out the elements one at a time. We'll take them together. Just hold on to the bread until we take it together. But let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you'd bless us in the sharing of this communion meal. Bless us because these things are the signs and symbols of Jesus' body and blood. And that real body 2,000 years ago was broken for us. And that real blood 2,000 years ago was shed for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
I always like to read Scripture before we partake and then say a prayer of thanks because that seems to be what Paul modeled for us in Scripture. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this uh, bread that represents your body, that you broke or allowed to be broken for us. We thank you that you died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. And we are reminded, even as we take this bread in, we are reminded that we need to look to you and take in your work through faith in you. We put our trust in you. And so by doing this, we proclaim your death until you come. Amen. Take and eat together. Scriptures say, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his blood that was shed on our behalf. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness on that cross to to have your blood pour out, to, to bear the full weight of the wrath of God. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just thank you for this wonderful fulfillment of your divine plan that the wrath of God for our sins is totally exhausted and we can have fellowship with you. 
We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you bring to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Take and drink.